Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume six, chapters 21 through 30. What students are doing is all throughout the world, they've either downloaded this book or downloaded it and printed it, or maybe even ordered a printed copy on Amazon to be able to study 10 chapters a week. And these chapters are actually quite small. Some of them are just a page or two long. And what we do is we study these all week long individually. And then we come together on Saturday in order to discuss the chapters and allow the students to seek any guidance that they would like on the individual chapters. So while students are doing this all over the world, you can actually join in and participate if this is your first time knowing of this program. The way that we do our program is that we meditate first and prepare the mind for the class. It helps you to retain the teachings. This really helps to clear out any clutter and allows you to really focus on the content of the class. Then after we meditate, there'll be a student who will read the chapter because I'll be displaying it on the screen for anyone, whether you're seeing this in Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, or wherever else. And then after a student reads the chapter, then I will share some teachings on that. And then we'll open up to any discussion. If you have the book, if you download it from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the button for free download of books, you'll see not only the words of the Buddha in each chapter, but you also see a reference where you can go back and see the original source of where that text came from in the original discourse of the Buddha. And you'll see some explanations where I've shared some thoughts to help you understand a bit more about the Buddhist teachings. Now, he spoke in a very clear, concise, and precise way. So the words that I share are just to help you further draw out some understanding of the teachings. But you shouldn't rely on my explanations 100%. You should still also do your own thinking, your own pondering, your own reflection to see what things you can glean from the words of the Buddha. And then you can use this class to come in and ask any questions, seek clarification, or even just confirm your understanding of what you read. You can also do this through the Facebook group that we have. You can post questions in there. You can send me a private message, or you can schedule a personal guidance discussion where you can schedule and we can meet one-on-one -on -one in Zoom, and I can help you with any challenges that you have there, or even how to apply these teachings to any personal examples. So you can use this class to gain as much insight as you'd like through asking questions and so forth, but there's also those other methods to seek clarification and guidance as well. 
So welcome to all of you guys, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining multiple times, I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to join us for meditation. So if you'd like to go ahead and take a position of seated, standing, or lying, usually walking is kind of done you know, at other times, usually in classes like this where we're online, we have a fixed camera, we need to kind of use either seated, lying, or standing. Go ahead and make your lower body comfortable. Your hands and arms should be comfortable and the upper body should be nice and erect. Then start to just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Just starting to establish your breath a bit. Just a nice gradual inhale and exhale. I'm gonna do some chanting. You're welcome to join along if you know these chants. And then afterwards, I'll just provide some light guidance to help you. Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose 
and out through the nose. The breath shouldn't be controlled or forced, just a nice natural inhale through the nose at your own pace, wherever you get to that. And then whenever you're ready, exhale out through the nose, nice gradual exhale. Breathing in. And out. As you're establishing the breath, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to let you do this work now. I'm just going to be quiet. Focusing the mind on the breath and any time when it's not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath the present moment, breathing in and out.
meditation, you just do kind of a short meditation there at the beginning of this class just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for learning. Of course, when you're doing your meditation, it's two or three sessions per day, you know, building up to 30 minutes or more. That's the real goal of what you'd like to build up to. So here in these classes, we just do a little bit of meditation just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for class. So as I mentioned, the way that we do this class is the students will read a particular chapter and then I'll share some teachings and then open up to any questions you guys might have on each individual chapter. So I'll just turn this over to all of you so that we can progress through chapters 21 through 30. Hello, teacher. Let's go to Kaida for the first chapter. Thank you, Bossam. All that occurs without a cause or condition. Then months, I approached those aesthetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, 
all that occurs without a cause or condition. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is without a cause or condition that you might destroy a life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and a hold of wrong view. Those who fall back on absence of cause and condition as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation aesthetic cannot be legitimately applied to them. All right, thank you, Kayla. So this is a continuation of a series of chapters that were in the last class where the Buddha shares these three aspects of the natural law of gamma, that if somebody truly views the world this way or truly believes this, truly has this opinion, he's saying you're not even on the path to enlightenment by saying, you know, the personal designation of aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. And what he says in those previous chapters is he says, if you believe that everything you're experiencing right now is based on the past and things that you did in the past, then you know, you're not even on the path to enlightenment because that means you have no ability to improve the condition of the mind and condition of your life because everything was based on the past and it's in the past and you can't change the past. So therefore, you're just kind of subjected to whatever happens. This is wrong view. This isn't the way that things truly work based on the natural law of gamma. And then the second one that he shared was, if you believe that everything in the world is based on the creative actions of God, that God is the one who's killing people, God's the one who causes famine and poverty and all the other difficult things that happen in the world, if you believe that it's God who's causing all of these things, then the Buddha is saying, you're not even on the path to enlightenment because if God is the one who's controlling the world, then we're all just robots. He didn't say this, of course, but I'm saying it, that if we truly believe that God's the one who's controlling everything in the world, then we're just robots and there's no ability for us to do anything at all because our decisions don't matter, because everything's already been determined by God. This is wrong view. And here he's saying in this third one that if we believe that there is no cause or condition of anything and that everything just happens by happenstance, you know, it's either good luck or bad luck, for example, then he's saying, you know, okay, if you believe this way, then is it because of no causes or conditions that you might destroy life? So if somebody chooses to kill, is there no cause or condition that has caused that? Or if someone chooses to steal, you know, is there no cause or condition that's created that or indulge in sexual activity? Because remember, he's speaking to ordained practitioners here who have chosen to eliminate sexual activity. So if somebody chooses, once they're ordained, to indulge in sexual activity, is that because of no cause or condition? It just happened just by happenstance? Or speak falsehood? Or produce argumentative speech, harsh speech, indulgent idle chatter? 
all of those things are based on a cause and condition. It's based on our own decisions and our own craving, anger, and ignorance is what's causing these things to occur. And that's where he sums it up here at the end where he says, you know, based on longing, this longing is craving, desire, attachment. You know, is there no cause or condition that is causing the longing, the yearning, the craving, desire, attachment, the wants, the expectations? No, of course not. There is a cause and condition. It's called craving. It's a unwholesome root. It's a poison in the mind that we need to transform. Same thing with ill will. This is anger, ill will, hatred, right? There's a cause and condition for that. And then the same thing of wrong view. This is the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So those are the actual three things that lead to all the others. So if someone has longing, ill will, and wrong view, then they're going to destroy life, steal, have sexual misconduct, speak falsehoods, argumentative, harsh, idle chatter. These things are often coming from a mind that has craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. And when those pollutions of mind, those taints, those fetters exist in the mind, those defilements, then the Buddha is basically saying here that, yeah, this person is going to be muddle-minded. Muddle-minded is like lacking clear comprehension, not having clarity, not having focus, not having concentration. So someone who is doing any of those things that the Buddha mentioned in the previous paragraph, they're going to be muddle-minded. Where a person who has eliminated those from their practice, then the mind is going to be enlightened. If they've eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, the mind is going to be enlightened. There's going to be focus. There's going to be concentration. There's going to be deep memory. And there's going to be clarity of mind. The opposite of muddle-minded. In this person who does not guard the mind, whenever you see the Buddha talking about guarding the mind, he's talking about mindfulness. Mindfulness or awareness of mind specifically those four foundations of mindfulness. That's what guards the mind. When you have awareness of mind and you see the anger arising, you're guarding the mind and you can cut that off and let it go. But if you're not practicing right mindfulness where you're aware of any discontentedness that's arising, then your mind is unguarded. You're just allowing whatever to arise to arise. But when we're practicing right mindfulness, we're guarding the mind. And then when we're aware of any unwholesome aspects of the mind arising, we can cut that off and let it go. And this is someone who is on the path to enlightenment. So being an aesthetic during the lifetime of the Buddha is being ordained or on this path to enlightenment. So someone who is not practicing these things and who truly thinks that everything that happens in our life, there is no cause or condition that has created it then the Buddha is saying, you're not even on the path to enlightenment if you really think that way, because if you think that way, then that means there's nothing you can do right now in order to improve the outcome of what you're experiencing in this life. There's nothing you can do to improve your mind if you truly think that there are no causes and conditions that are allowing these things to arise. So by understanding the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, then we know that there are causes and conditions that are causing the various things to arise in our mind and then various experiences that happen in our life. Namely, it's craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's what is going to produce all unwholesome results in our life. But then when we transform that to generosity, 
loving kindness and wisdom, those are the exact opposites. Now we base all of our decisions in the three wholesome roots, and now we'll experience wholesome outcomes as a result. So what this path is all about is transforming the mind away from craving anger and ignorance and moving it towards generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom through eliminating the 10 fetters and building up your life practice that the Buddha lays out as part of the full path. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Well, uh, are you saying here, teacher, that we are the ones who are causing discontentedness for ourselves? For example, anger? What's the wisdom for one to cause anger for himself or herself? Yeah, we're causing all discontentedness in the mind. Not only am I saying that, but the Buddha is too, is that when we lack wisdom, so when we have this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, we don't know what's causing anger. But when you gain the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, not belief, but you see it, you learn the teachings, and then you reflect on them and you practice to see the truth for yourself, what's causing this to arise is that the mind is having ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, so it doesn't even know. Oftentimes on the unenlightened mind, people blame others for their anger. But when you gain the wisdom, you can see that when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the mind's either going to experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So when we experience something agreeable through the six sense bases of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind, we experience something agreeable, there's these pleasant feelings, these conditioned pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, and others that will arise in the mind. But it's only a matter of time if we allow the mind to base its inner feelings on these conditions to arise pleasant feelings. It's only a matter of time before these painful feelings occur when there's something that's disagreeable that occurs. And then that's when that anger, that hostility, that aggression, that argumentative speech arises. We start having these unskillful conduct because there's now anger or frustration or irritation or annoyance in the mind and it's being caused by this mental longing with strong eagerness it's not being caused by your friend didn't pick you up at the right time or your life partner your children didn't do what you wanted them to do the problem is that the mind is clinging it's craving it's wanting it has this mental longing and strong eagerness and because of that mental longing and strong eagerness it's arising this anger and it doesn't mean that we don't encourage and motivate and suggest for our children or our life partners to accomplish certain things in their life. We can still do that. But when we do it with such yearning and longing, that's where the real problem comes in because now the mind's going to be forceful. And it's just like an animal that when it doesn't get the objects of its affection, then we lash out with hostility and anger and aggression. And this is where we damage our relationships and we find it very difficult to conduct ourselves in a peaceful and harmonious way in the world. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So now we'll move on to chapter 22. Yes, let's go to Miranda. Worst kind of doctrine, that there is no karma. Monks, a hair blanket is declared to be the worst kind of woven garment. A hair blanket is cold in cold weather, hot in hot weather, ugly, foul-smelling, and uncomfortable. So, too, the doctrine of Macaulay is declared the worst among the doctrines of the various ascetics. The unwise man Macaulay teaches the doctrine in view, 
there is no comma, no deed, no energy. That is not only there is no result from comma, but also no comma, comma itself. All deeds are null. Monks, the fortunate ones, arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones of the past, taught a doctrine of comma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Macaulay, contradicts them with his claim, there is no comma, no deed, no energy. The fortunate ones, arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones of the future, will also teach a doctrine of comma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Macaulay, contradicts them with his claim, there is no comma, no deed, no energy. At present, I am the arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, and I teach doctrine of comma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Macaulay, contradicts me with his claim, there is no comma, no deed, no energy. Just as, just as a trap set at the mouth of a river would bring about harm, pain, calamity, and disaster to many fish, so too the unwise man Macaulay is, as it were, a trap for people who has arisen in the world for the harm, pain, calamity, and disaster of many beings. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So I've mentioned on multiple occasions how during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple people teaching, all claiming that they had attained enlightenment, and there were various communities assembled around each of those teachers. And there was the Buddha who was teaching as well, and more and more as he taught, people who learned with him started to understand that he was enlightened and he was a fully perfectly enlightened one. But not everyone chose to do that during the lifetime of the Buddha, because a Buddha doesn't go around performing countless miracles to try to convince people that they are a Buddha, they just share their teachings. And since their teachings are independently verifiable, they don't need someone to know that they're a Buddha in order to help that person. That person, if they take the time, effort, energy, and resources to learn the teachings, they can see for themselves that what they're learning is actually the truth because they can independently verify it and acquire wisdom and they see the condition of their mind gradually improving. So here in this particular teaching, we get a name of one of these other teachers that the Buddha is referencing. And here he's saying, you know, this person is unwise that them saying that there's no such thing as gamma is going to cause this calamity. It's going to cause this disaster, this harm, this pain, because what the natural law of gamma is, is it's cause and effect, action and result, essentially the results of our decisions. So if there's a person teaching that there are no causes and conditions that led to a certain outcome, then basically what this person is teaching is it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it. Things are just going to happen around you regardless of your decisions, which is very dangerous because if somebody really thought that way and they just went through life without giving thought to the decisions they're making, then they're going to be causing all kinds of harm in the world. So if somebody's actually teaching that there's no such thing as gamma, then it's going to cause pain and harm and calamity for many, many beings. Even Jesus Christ himself taught the natural law of gamma. He taught you reap what you sow. He didn't call it gamma because it was a different language, different teacher describing it in their own way. But even Jesus Christ taught that there's such thing as cause and effect or action and result. And we reap the benefits of the decisions we've made. And if they're wise decisions, there's going to be wholesome results. And if there's unwise decisions or unwholesome decisions, there's going to be 
unwholesome results. So here the Buddha is making it very clear that the results of our decisions, what we call gamma, there's a cause and condition. And that's the whole goal of this path to enlightenment is to learn enough about this natural law of gamma that you're making wiser and wiser and wiser decisions that are leading to more and more wholesome outcomes in your life in terms of the life partners that you select, the job that you select, the people that you spend time with around you, how you interact with people around you, the relationships you have with your parents and your other family members, the relationships that you have with your friends and your professional colleagues, all through your moral conduct, the decisions that you make and how you interact with all these people, this is going to be a direct impact of what you experience coming back to you. Whereas if we make unwise, unwholesome decisions through our intention, speech, and actions, then what we get back from people is going to be very unwholesome. Well, conversely, if we're wise about how we interact with people, making wholesome decisions through our intention, speech, and actions, now what comes back to us is this politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect, because that's what we put out, so that's what comes back to us. And it's very clear in the Buddhist teachings that he's exposing more and more of this natural law of gamma as you progress on this path. And what you're really awakening to, when you awaken to enlightenment, as you're gradually learning, you're gradually learning this natural law. And this awakening is essentially a, a gaining wisdom. You're acquiring wisdom. There's not this light switch that you just go from having complete ignorance or unknowing of true reality to full wisdom. There's not a light switch, it's a gradual progression. And what you're gradually doing is you're gradually learning more and more about this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. What are the causes and conditions that are wise and wholesome? Let me incorporate more of that into my life. And where I see these unwise and unwholesome decisions that the mind wants to make, because it still has craving, anger, and ignorance, if the mind is unenlightened, it still has that craving, anger, and ignorance. So where you see that the mind wants to make these unwholesome decisions, these unwise decisions, you cut that off and let it go. Spend some time reflecting so that you can make wise decisions based on generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And that's what the Buddha is essentially getting to here is that the natural law of gamma is like core and central to this path to enlightenment. So anybody who's saying that there's no such thing as gamma, they either haven't investigated the teachings deep enough, they don't understand it deep enough, or they're just completely not looking at the teachings at all. And it's not that one should believe in the natural law of gamma. You should learn it, reflect on it, and then practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. And that's what this whole book and the whole path to enlightenment is really all about. Questions on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. Okay. Chapter 23. Result of karma is threefold. And what is the result of karma? The result of karma, I say, is threefold. To be experienced in this very life or in the next rebirth or on some subsequent occasion. This is called the result of karma. This monks is called action's fruit. Okay, so we saw this to a certain degree in a previous chapter. Essentially what the Buddha is saying is the decisions that we make that lead to some result, we're going to experience that result. We're going to experience that karma either in this life right now that we're living 
on our next rebirth, if we happen to be reborn, if we don't get to enlightenment, we're going to experience the results of decisions that we make right now in our next life, or we're going to experience it on some subsequent occasion, which means some rebirth after the next one. So with this understanding, what you can understand is you can't run and hide from your decisions. The decisions that you make, they're going to produce some result, and you can't run and hide from that. So once you understand that, then a wise person would say, well, if every decision I make, wholesome or unwholesome, I'm going to experience the results of that, either in this life, the next rebirth or some subsequent occasion. Let me work and apply effort to understand how to make the wisest, most wholesome decisions so that I can experience wholesome results, but more importantly, experience enlightenment and escape this whole cycle of rebirth because I'm not interested in continuing to experience the harmful results of the unwise decisions and the unwholesome decisions that I'm making. Since I can't run and hide from the unwholesome decisions, the unwise decisions, I might as well figure this out now in this human life. Now that we've got this human birth, which is the ideal birth to be able to learn, reflect and practice, cultivate the mind and get to enlightenment. Since I've got this ideal birth, let me figure it out. Let me work towards this enlightened mental state because anything unwholesome that I do, I'm going to experience the results of that. There's just no way around it. And that's essentially what this short little bit is explaining, that you're going to experience the results of every decision that you make. Well, does this mean that for us, finding these teachings and practicing them is our karma? Yes, it's a result of your decision. So as you guys know that I've been studying in this program, most of you guys have been learning with me for quite a a while. And each time you choose to show up the class, each time you choose to pick up the book and read, each time you choose to meditate, each time you see the mind wanting to argue and be aggressive or hostile, which is maybe what you're used to in the past, and you cut that off and let that go. Every time you do these things, these are choices that you're making, which is improving your results. This is improving the results of your mind, improving your life. So every single thing that you're doing is a result of your decision. So at some point you were in your life and you were like, you know what? I'd like to learn the Buddhist teachings or I would like to learn how to meditate or I would like to understand this whole enlightenment thing a little bit better. At some point, you gradually started moving in that direction and you eventually found me as a teacher. You found these resources, these classes and all these other things. And from there, it's been one decision after another after another to build up your wisdom and thus use that wisdom to then train your mind and improve the condition of your mind in your life. So everything you're experiencing on this path It's all a result of your decisions. What about the previous karma, the previous unwholesome karma that we made in the past? Is there a way to clean this? Yes. So when you're off this path, you're making all kinds of decisions. Some may be, you know, somewhat wholesome, but we're making a lot of unwholesome decisions when we're off this path because we don't know the wisdom of this path. And I call it, you know, we're just walking through the forest, knocking down trees and burning up the forest because we don't know what we don't know. And we're making all those decisions. And then at some point we decide, okay, I'm going to start dedicating some time, effort, energy and resources to this path. And then as you start learning this path, the eightfold path, 
is guiding you how to make wiser and wiser decisions. It's not telling you what to do, but it's giving you this guidance of this natural law. And then within your own personality, your own character, your own free will, you're making decisions based on your understanding of this natural law of gamma. And as you refine your understanding more and more, you're making more and more and more wholesome decisions. So you're in effect cleaning up your old decisions, your old gamma, your unwholesome gamma. As it's coming back to you now, you're starting to handle that differently. Where in the past, before you were on this path, maybe your neighbor would come and say, hey, your trash is blowing all over your yard. Where in the past, you might have got angry and hostile and been vindictive and talked harsh to this person. Maybe now you choose to function differently and now you're cleaning up your gamma. The way you clean up your gamma is you can't go back and change what you did in the past. So all you can do is start producing new decisions that are all wholesome. So when we talked at the beginning of this book, we talked about wholesome gamma and unwholesome gamma. And we talked about new gamma and old gamma. So you've already made certain decisions in the past that are going to come back to you. Certain wholesome decisions, but also certain number of unwholesome decisions as well. And as those unwholesome results are coming back to you, now you're going to have more wisdom to be able to handle that situation differently than you would have in the past. And the way you extinguish all your unwholesome gamma, that is old gamma, is now in the present moment, you only make decisions that are wholesome based on wisdom so that your new gamma is all wholesome. So now gradually, slowly, but surely, you continue to make wiser and wiser decisions. This is one of the reasons why you need two years, three years, four years or more, depending on who, who the person is and the condition of their mind, you need this time to be able to experience all this gamma coming back to you and now handle it in a different way. The way that I explain it is if you had a garden hose and there was all this mud in the garden hose, the way you clear out the mud of the garden hose is you put all this pure water in the garden hose and you flush out all the mud. But as you're putting that pure water into the garden hose, it's going to spit some dirty water and then it's going to spit some clean water and then it's going to spit a whole bunch of dirty water and then some clean water and then some dirty water and clean. And eventually when you put enough clean water into the garden hose, you're going to get all clean, pure water coming out of the garden hose. So it's the same thing. When you get on this path, you've got a garden hose full of mud. And now as you ramp up your wisdom of this path, you start putting more and more pure water into this garden hose. And it's going to spit mud for a while. It's going to spit mud. But you're going to get these little glimpses of pure water coming out of the garden hose. And as you go throughout many months and years, putting enough pure water into this garden hose, then eventually it's going to have all pure water coming out because you've only been putting in pure water. So therefore, there's only going to be pure water coming out the other end. But as you're ramping up your practice and getting closer and closer to practicing the Eightfold Path perfectly in the ideal way, you're still making some unwholesome decisions. Even though you're on this path, there's still certain things that you don't quite have 100% wisdom of yet, or you don't have 100% control over the mind yet because you just haven't been at it long enough. So it's not like there's this clean cutover from having dirty water in the hose to immediately putting pure water. 
there's kind of like some still some dirty water being put into this garden hose as you're ramping up your practice. But once you ramp your practice up and you get to that first stage of enlightenment, like we talked about in the previous book, that's where, wow, you're really putting some pure water into the garden hose at this point. And you need to be doing this for an extended period of time so that you can clear out your life and your life practice with all your relationships, with your job, with everything that's going on in your life. You need to kind of purify the mind so that then you're producing more and more purified decisions. So when you're purifying each one of those steps of the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When you purify this really, really well, by the time you're doing that, you're going to experience the jhanas and then that first stage of enlightenment. And then that's where things are really starting to happen. Really wonderful because your discontentedness has significantly diminished. You've significantly diminished craving, anger, and ignorance. And now you're just kind of making the journey all the way to the rest of the journey, which is to that fourth stage as an otter hunt. And this is where I talked about getting to that first stage of enlightenment is like getting to base camp at Mount Everest. You do all this work for many, many years to figure out what tent, what boots, what clothes, what food, what supplies, what backpack. You condition the body and the mind and the lungs and all these things. And you finally make your way to base camp at Mount Everest. You've got everything you need, but you still got to get to the summit. And that takes some planning and some more effort. You haven't really made it to the top yet, but you've got everything you need at base camp. So that first stage of enlightenment is like getting to base camp. But even there, you still don't have all the wisdom that you need. This is why some people make it to the summit at Mount Everest and some people don't. So even when you're in that first stage of enlightenment, there's still time, effort, energy, and resources that you need to apply in order to continue to build your wisdom because the water going into the hose isn't quite pure yet by the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment. It's a whole, 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 whole lot purer than when you were off this path, but it's still not 100% pure yet. So the more that you practice the Eightfold Path, the more pureness that you're putting into this hose, eventually you'll get all pure water coming out. And that's where all the results that you're experiencing in life are going to be wholesome because you're putting only wholesome decisions, these wise decisions, into your life. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So we'll go to the next one which is chapter 24. Let's go to Miranda. Beings bound by action. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action, one is a Brahmin. By action is one a non-Brahmin. For men are farmers by their acts, and by their acts are craftsmen too. And men are merchants by their acts, and by their acts are servants too. And men are robbers by their acts, and by their acts are soldiers soldiers too. And men are chaplains by their acts, and by their acts are rulers too. So that is how the truly wise see action as it really is, see dependent origination, skilled in action and its results. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So remember what I've talked about before, that during the lifetime of the Buddha, 
there was this 15% of society that were part of this Brahmin class, which are like Hindu priests, which if you're born into that class or into that family, then you're considered to be a priest and you have this ability to connect to the gods. And then all the commoners would come and pay these Brahmin to then go pray on their behalf. And they would go back home and things were supposed to get better. But of course, the Buddha knew that this wasn't true, that this isn't how the world works. But people believed it during their lifetime, that if you were born into this Brahmin class, that you were kind of a special person and you were kind of almost like noble because you were born into this class of people. And the Buddha is making it clear here that you're not a Brahmin by birth, you know, and nor by birth are you a non-Brahmin, right? So it's all about our actions. If our actions are pure, then that is one who is a, a Brahmin. And if by actions, one is a non-Brahmin. So if we're unwholesome, then, you know, you're not this Brahmin is what the Buddha is basically saying here. And the same thing about all these other fields he's using as an example. Farmers, craftsmen, merchants, servants, robbers, soldiers, chaplains, rulers, that all of the things that we experience in life is based on our actions, cause and effect, action and result. And he's saying that, okay, for those of us that are wise, that can see things as it truly is, then we see that is our actions, that is the cause and effect, this dependent origination that we talked about in the last book, this cause and effect, because it is our actions that produce some certain result. That's the natural law of gamma, cause and effect or action and result. We experience the things that we experience based on our decisions. And then he adds some more here where he says, okay, you know, actions make the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by their actions, meaning based on what we do, either wholesome or unwholesome, we're going to experience that. We're going to experience that result. And this linchpin that he's talking about, where he says, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. The linchpin, if you look at a chariot, there's a cart and then there's horses that are going to pull that cart. And there's a linchpin that keeps those two things together. And the linchpin is what's holding these two things together and allowing the cart to be used as transportation. So what the Buddha is saying is that our actions are this linchpin that's holding together our life practice, that based on what we do, it's that's what determines our life. And oftentimes what we look for is someone who has certain speech, right? You know, if somebody can stand up in front of a crowd and deliver a moving speech, oh, this must be a wonderful person. But it's not just the speech that one should consider. We should look at someone's actions. If we're going to choose certain people to be in our life, it's not that we're judging someone. It's not that we're looking down on somebody. But if we only look at someone's speech, then we're not seeing the whole picture. It's really by our actions because you can kind of talk sweet for a while, but your actions, your bodily actions are going to show what's truly in the mind. So someone might say, oh, yeah, I'll be for you. I'll be there for you no matter what. You just give me a call. I'll be there for you. They might say that. But then when you actually call them, do they actually come and help you? That's their actions, right? So you need to look at your actions and understand that it's your actions that determine 
what you experience in this life, either wholesome or unwholesome. It's not based on our birth. If we're born into a rich family, we're born into a poor family, we're born into a rich country or we're born into a poor country, it's not about where we're born that determines who we are as a person. It's based on our actions. And that's what the Buddha is getting to here. Well, so anyone is able to walk the path to enlightenment. There is no prerequisites for progressing to enlightenment. Exactly. Anybody, anywhere can learn, reflect, and practice. And that's one of the reasons why I've set up in the way that I have is that everything's free. Everything's available for free so that there's no roadblocks. There's no wall in the way inhibiting anybody. There's still some challenges, right? Because there's people in certain places that they don't have a mobile phone. They don't have a computer or electronic device. They don't even have money to buy data for their phone. Even if they have a phone, they might not have money to buy the data to download or to participate in these classes. So there's kind of like barriers like that, right? And there's also time barriers where there's some people that are just living meal to meal to meal. They don't have time to think about, am I going to attend class on Saturday and learn about the Buddhist teachings? I'm busy just trying to find my next meal, right? There's these kind of people that have unfortunate circumstances in the world that we should have compassion for these beings. But if somebody has the capability to learn, meaning they're body and their mind has the capability to learn and they have the ability to connect into these resources then they should be able to learn and practice to improve their life and this is where people who are more fortunate and who do have more time effort energy and resources we can find ways to help others in situations by giving out free books or helping people with some food or clothes or things like this so they don't have to worry about those things and maybe it provides them a little bit of a reprieve to then be able to focus on improving their life because if you've ever experienced poverty or you've ever been around people that are in poverty then poverty is not something that's easy to get out of i mean if you're living meal to meal to meal and you're only concerned about what is my next meal am i even going to have a next meal that's very hard to get out of that kind of poverty and it's people that are maybe more well off that we can reach out and we can help people to not have to worry about their next meal and have resources like the teachings of the Buddha to be able to improve their decision making and get to an improved life in this life or in some future birth. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. I thought Miranda might have a question here, but maybe not. Did you have a question here, Miranda? Uh, yes, sir. You sort of already spoke to it, though. Um, the question really was, if someone can be reborn into difficult circumstances due to unwholesome karma generated, produced in a previous existence, if they're born into difficult circumstances where they might be more inclined to do unwholesome actions such as stealing food for meals and things, how would that person eventually work their way out of that? The way to work themselves out of that is to gain the wisdom that stealing food isn't going to produce beneficial results, right? That's what the craving wants to do because of the ignorance, there's craving there. But once a being starts to understand the wisdom, then they can 
move themselves out from that. But it's very challenging in some places that don't have access to these teachings or even know there is such thing as a Buddha, right? There's people on the face of this earth that have no idea what a Buddha is. And that's where they just continue to be in this cycle over and over and over again. And they're going to be reborn enough to eventually get into a better improved birth. But there's people that are more fortunate that do understand these teachings and that we have more resources available to us that we can make these teachings available to people who don't otherwise have the ability to learn. So like the retreat that we're doing in America this summer, we're setting it up in such a way that anybody can come to the retreat. You know, there's donations that are being collected in order to host the retreat, but we're making the retreat open to anybody and everybody who would like to attend. These are the kind of things that we can do as a community of people is make these teachings available without a need to have any particular level of income or anything like that. So we don't go out on street corners and beat drums and try to force people to learn and practice these teachings. But when we are sharing these teachings, we can make them available to people in ways that they don't have to have an extra burden of a financial cost, for example, in order to learn these teachings. So that's why all the books are free. All the classes are free. All the retreats that I do are free. All those kind of things because they're being supported by people who have a little bit more fortune, a little bit more ability. They can provide donations and then those donations go to help all of us to come together. But also anybody who is lacking resources, they can come to the event as well or come into these classes and things like that. So the wisdom of the Buddha is what's going to help these beings ultimately get out of this whole cycle of rebirth. But for some people, depending on their level of poverty and their level of understanding, they may not even be aware of these teachings yet. And that's where we can try to make them more accessible and find ways that they can become more accessible in the world without actually forcing or controlling or trying to pressure people into learning, but making them available and then inviting people to be able to come in and learn at their own choice, their own decisions. Thank you. Sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right, chapter 25. To be reborn, graceful, rich, and influential. Malika, some women are not prone to anger or often intensely frustrated. Even if she is criticized a lot, she does not lose her temper and become irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She does not display anger, hatred, and bitterness, and she gives thanks to ascetics or Brahmins, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, skins, and ointments, bidding, dwellings, and lightning, lighting. When she passes away from that state, if she comes back to this world, wherever she is reborn, she is beautiful, attractive, and graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, rich with great wealth and property, and influential. Okay, so here's the Buddha just describing the natural law of gamma. And remember, as I talked at the beginning of this book, the Buddha never used this natural law or his teachings to ever guilt, shame, or fear anyone into learning and practicing his teachings because 
this path to enlightenment is to train the mind to get to enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where you've eliminated guilt, shame, and fear, among other discontent feelings. So he wouldn't use guilt, shame, and fear in order to entice somebody to learn his teachings because he's trying to help people get rid of that. And conversely, he's also not going to dangle a carrot and try to produce all these pleasant feelings in someone's mind in order to convince them to learn his teachings because he's trying to help eliminate the conditions that are causing the mind to go up with this excited and thrill and then down with sadness and anger. He's trying to help people to learn the teachings to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where the mind is in the middle, where it's stable, it's unshakable, it's very calm. So when you see teachings like this, where he's like, okay, he's talking to this woman and he's saying, okay, people who aren't prone to anger or intense frustration, they don't lose their temper, they're not irritated, hostile, or stubborn, then they offer these gifts to aesthetics and Brahmin, then if they're reborn, they're going to come back being beautiful, attractive, graceful, possessing this supreme beauty of complexion, rich, great wealth and property and influential. What he's doing here is he's just saying the truth. He's just teaching the truth. He's not trying to dangle a carrot and try to convince you to do these things. He's just telling you the truth, right? He's not trying to push or force or pressure anybody into being one way or the other because his mind is already liberated. He no longer has craving, anger, and ignorance. He's not trying to prove to the world who he is. A Buddha is a Buddha. They already know that they're a Buddha. Their mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. They're not trying to prove anything to anybody. They're just making themselves available for the rest of their life to help as many people who are interested to attain that same mental state. So he's not using this as a way to pressure somebody into doing anything particular. He's just helping you to understand the natural law of gamma, that if you aren't a person who has anger, intense frustration, if you don't lose your temper, if you're not irritated, hostile, stubborn, if you don't display anger, hatred, and bitterness, and you make gifts to aesthetics and Brahmin or teachers, people who are sharing these good, wholesome teachings into the world, then what he's saying is if that person is reborn, they're going to be reborn in this better destination, right? And this is how somebody, Miranda, goes from living a very difficult life to improving their results in this life, but also in future lives as well, should they need to be reborn. So it's important whenever you read this, if your mind has been conditioned in the past through learning teachings of other traditions where they were guilting or shaming or fearing you into one particular thing or another, or if people were dangling a carrot and saying, you know, if you do all these things, you know, all these good things are going to happen for you. If you experience that in the past, it's important that you don't allow that conditioning of mind, those experiences that you had in the past to condition your mind to think that that's what the Buddha is doing as well. So even though you experience this with other people in your life, maybe where they were guilt, shame, fearing or dangling a carrot towards you to practice certain teachings. Don't allow your mind to take that same experience and now attribute it to the Buddha. And that's what he's doing as well, because that's the conditioning of mind. That's the pollution. That's clinging to your perceptions. Remember the five aggregates of form, feeling, perceptions, 
volitional formations in consciousness. Perceptions are beliefs and opinions, the way things seem to be. So if you had experiences in the past where people were guilting, shaming, fearing you, dangling a carrot, and you clinged to that perception, if you cling to that opinion, to that view, to that belief, and now you attributed it to what you're seeing with the Buddhist teachings, you're clinging to your perceptions, you're holding on, and you're not going to be able to get liberated if you continue to hold on to those perceptions from things you experienced in the past. Not only related to something like this, but say you had a negative experience with a certain life partner or a certain friend. Maybe they were of certain ethnicity or a certain gender or something like this. And say that this person treated you really badly. And if you cling to that perception that all people of that ethnicity or all people of that gender are horrible just because of this one or two experiences that you had, now if you cling to that perception, now when you meet this other person of the same ethnicity, if you now cast this conditioning of mind onto this other person, now you're not going to be able to have this trusting relationship with this new person because your mind is still clinging to the perceptions of what you experienced in a past experience. This is how the mind gets conditioned. This is where racism comes from. This is where other things come from, is that somebody somewhere maybe had a bad experience with somebody of a certain ethnicity, and now they cling to that perception that everybody of that same ethnicity or that same gender or that same whatever, that same group, a, a police officer, right? They had one bad experience with a police officer, and now they think all police officers are going to be the same way. And now they're very fearful and they're attributing these same experiences from this other relationship to this new police officer, right? And this is where the mind experiences continuous discontentedness because it's stuck in this cycle of clinging and holding on to our perceptions. So that's why in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha talks about not clinging to something like a perception. So I bring that up here on this particular teaching because here the Buddha is speaking the truth. He's just saying, hey, if you practice in this way, this is what you can experience as a result. Not as a way to guilt, shame, or fear you. Not as a way to dangle a carrot. But he's just explaining the truth of what truly occurs. So don't allow any clinging to perceptions of what you experienced in the past to think that the Buddha is somehow trying to manipulate or coerce people into learning his teachings because that's not what a Buddha is about. So any questions on this chapter? No question on this chapter, sure. All right. Chapter 26. Gifts of a wholesome person. Monks, there are these five gifts of a wholesome person. What five? One, he gives a gift out of confidence. Two, he gives a gift respectfully. Three, he gives a timely gift. Four, he gives a gift unreservedly. Five, he gives a gift without injuring himself or others. One, because he has given a gift out of confidence, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property. And he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. Two, because he has given a gift respectfully. 
wherever the result of the gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and his sons and wives, slaves, servants, and workers are obedient, lend an ear, and apply their minds to understand. Three, because he has given a timely gift, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and timely benefits come to him in abundance. Four, because he has given a gift unreservedly, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and his mind inclines to the enjoyment of the five kinds of fine sensual pleasures. Five, because he has given a gift without injuring himself or others, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and no damage comes to his property from any source, whether from fire, floods, kings, thieves, or displeasing ears. These are the five gifts of a wholesome person. All right. Thank you, Basim. So as you guys have learned in other parts of the Buddhist teachings, giving gifts and practicing generosity where you're giving and sharing is a important component of the path to enlightenment because the primary thing that's causing discontentedness in the mind is this craving, desire, attachment. The mind's holding on. So by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, but also practicing generosity, it trains the mind to let go through giving and sharing. And this is very beneficial for the mind. So the Buddha teaches how to give a gift and he talks about it extensively. The volume 13 of this book series is devoted to generosity and helping you understand all the different teachings the Buddha has around generosity because it helps us to train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It's a major component of this path to enlightenment. And we can give gifts of time, effort, energy, and resources, right? We can share with people our food. We can share our time. We can share all different aspects of things. Of course, we need to also maintain our own ability to sustain our life, but we can also share with others as well. So the Buddha here is talking about five aspects of giving that a wholesome person would ensure that they're practicing as part of their giving and sharing, as part of their generosity. So he talks about confidence, being respectful, giving a timely gift, giving unreservably, and without injuring himself or others. We can talk about any one of these that you guys would like. Oftentimes people ask about what does it mean to give a gift without injuring himself or others? What this means is finding that middle way, right? If you were just giving without any thought and then your own family didn't have the necessities to sustain their life, you would be injuring yourself or others, right? Or if you were going out and robbing people in order to give gifts to your teacher who's sharing the teachings of the Buddha with you, that would be injuring yourself or others, right? So you need to find this middle way. And the Buddha talks in other parts of his teachings about how any wealth that you acquire, you should ensure that you, your life partner, your children, your employees, basically these people are whole first. Then you should make sure like your relatives and people like this are whole. And then lastly, as you go through this whole list, he talks about himself, like making offerings to aesthetics and Brahmin, 
you know, teachers, people who are sharing these teachings, this is kind of like last, that you should kind of make offerings and share and give to all of these other people, ensuring that everyone else is whole before you actually get to sharing with your teacher, for example, because if you weren't whole, if you didn't have the ability to sustain your own life, then how could you ever take care of other people? So oftentimes we're taught in the world that it's selfish to take care of ourselves, but this isn't true. If you wouldn't take care of your own food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, how could you ever take care of anybody else? Because you don't have the things that you need to sustain your life. So that's what he's talking about here when he's talking about giving a gift without injuring himself or others. And if you guys have any questions on any of these others, just let me know. Seems that Miranda has a question. That's good to hear. Yes, sir. Um, The first one, it's unclear what that means, giving a gift out of confidence. Sure. So the Buddha has another teaching where he says, when you give a gift, you should be joyful before you give the gift. And then while you're giving the gift, you should be content and joyful and calm, have a calm mind while you're giving the gift. And then after you've given a gift, you should also be joyful at that point too. And essentially this is the confidence that you have confidence that the person you're giving the gift to, that that's a person that you would like to give the gift to and that you're joyful kind of before, during and after the gift where If before the gift, you're like, "Mm, I'm not really sure if I should give a gift to this person or not. You know, uh, do they really deserve it? Is it somebody that I should really give a gift? Your mind isn't confident. You're kind of wavering. And then while you're actually giving the gift, the same thing. If your mind's not calm and peaceful and joyful, then that means that the mind's not confident. And then after giving the gift, sometimes people can have remorse like, oh, I didn't give enough. I should have gave more or I gave too much. Why did I give so much? That's going to be too much. I'm not going to be able to pay my rent this month. Why did I do that? Right? So the Buddha is saying that if you're going to give a gift, your mind should have this confidence kind of all the way through the life cycle of giving this gift. And he gives more details on it in other parts of his teachings, which I just summarized for you there. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right. So we'll go to chapter 27. Deeds with fruit that result in great accomplishment and power. Having cultivated for seven years a mind of loving kindness, for seven eons of contraction and expansion, I did not return to this world. Whenever the eon contracted, I reached the plane of streaming radiance. And when the eon expanded, I arose in an empty heavenly mansion, and there I was Brahma, God, the great Brahma, the unvanquished victor, that the all-knowing, the all-powerful. Thirty-six times I was Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, and many hundreds of times I was a wheel-turning monarch, righteous, a king of righteousness, conqueror of the four regions of the earth, maintaining stability in the land, in possession of the seven treasures. What need is there to speak of mere local kingship? It occurred to me, monks, to wonder of what kind of deed of mine is this the fruit? Of what deed 
of what deeds ripening am I now of such great accomplishment and power? And then it occurred to me, it is the fruit of three kinds of deeds of mine. The ripening of three kinds of deeds that I am now of such great accomplishment and power. Deeds of giving, of mastery of the mind, and of refraining. All right. Thank you, Basim. So here the Buddha is basically recounting what it is that kind of led to him attaining enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. He eventually gets to what he attributes his ability to attain enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha because you understand how difficult it is to attain enlightenment with the guidance of teachers and all these resources. Imagine for a Buddha, they would really need to be able to have an extraordinary amount of ability and wisdom to be able to ultimately get to enlightenment and they would be accumulating that wisdom over multiple lifetimes it's not just their last life that actually leads to their enlightenment as a buddha and the buddha is recounting some of his previous lives and then he kind of boils it down to these three things that he says are direct contributors to what led to his enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened buddha and he says giving. That was a really big one. He talks about this at other points too in his teachings where he talks about generosity and how him being generous in multiple past lives led to his ability to become a Buddha in this life, his last life. This mastery of mind, being able to have mental discipline and controlling the mind and then refraining, refraining from you know unwholesome things like killing and stealing, sexual misconduct and lying and substances that cause heedlessness and things like that. So these are the three things that the Buddha is saying, these actions are what have led to his ability to attain enlightenment in this life. But he was accumulating those over multiple lives because back here, he talks about having cultivated loving kindness for seven years, right? Because we know his journey to enlightenment was basically six years. And he's saying, you know, he cultivated loving kindness for seven years. And that could have been prior to him going on this journey or what have you. We don't exactly know from just this. Seven eons. What an eon is, an eon is an unmeasurable, an immeasurable amount of time. One eon, the Buddha talks about it not even being calculable, that you can't really measure an eon. So he's saying going through seven eons where the universe is you know, expanding and extracting he experienced these different rebirths. And here, this one, he's talking about Brahma. Brahma during the lifetime of the Buddha is what we refer to today as God. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple gods that were being discussed. But this great Brahma, this is what we refer to as God. So wherever you ever are encountering certain people or certain books or classes where people say the Buddha denied the existence of God or anything like that. I've shown you a couple different places in his teachings where he talks about God. Here's one where he says that he was God in a previous life. Now, I have a feeling that what he's really talking about here is that he could look out at the world as if he is God. This kind of makes it sound like, you know, he says, in there I was, Brahma, you know, the great Brahma, the un- vanquished victor, the all-knowing, the all-powerful. I think what he's saying here is a Buddha has the ability to look out at the world as if they are God, 
but they aren't God. They aren't a God. They're a human being. So I have a feeling that's what he's saying here. So anytime you ever see anybody that says the Buddha denied the existence of God, it's just not true because here's just one place out of many places where he talks about great Brahma in, in God. And then he talks here that 36 times in previous lives, he was this ruler of the heavenly beings. And then many hundreds of times, he was a wheel-turning monarch and he was this king. And then here he says, you know, what is there to speak of a mere local kingship? There's some people that say that the Buddha wasn't a prince, that he wasn't destined to become a king. They say that he was something else, that his father was elected leader of a certain region of the world and the Buddha wasn't a prince. Well, here, this is what he's saying is he's saying, you know, what's to speak of this mere local kingship that he was destined to become a king, right? He was a prince destined to become a king and he stepped down away from that. So he's saying, you know, what is there to speak of this mere local kingship that he was about to inherit when he's already been 36 times? He's been the ruler of heavenly beings. He's already been a wheel turning monarch multiple times, which is a king. He's already experienced those things. So what does he care essentially about this mere local kingship, right? He could give that up because he's already experienced those things. So here, what his life has resulted in is ripening in this great accomplishment and power of a Buddha. Of course, he lived his life as a homeless, roaming aesthetic who lived off of the donations of people who gave him food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But his mind had accomplished great things in terms of the wisdom that he had accomplished. And then he attributes that to these three things of his actions of practicing generosity, of mastering the mind or having this mental discipline, and from being able to refrain from unwholesome things. These are the three things that he says, this is what led to his enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And of course, he talks about other things too, like the Eightfold Path and breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other aspects. But these are kind of like three high level things that he's talking about. So what you would do when you see a teaching like this is like, okay, let me be sure that I incorporate generosity into my life practice. Let me be sure that I incorporate mental discipline or mastery of the mind into my life practice. Let me also work on refraining and, and restraining the mind from unwholesomeness, because if that worked for the Buddha, it will surely work for me too. Because his mind, while he was a Buddha, his mind functions in the same way as everyone else's. His mind has certain qualities that are unique to a Buddha, but in terms of what will lead to your enlightenment, it's the same aspects of the way that he cultivated his practice. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question, the same teacher. All right, move on to chapter 28. Yes. Why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? Then the Brahmin student Subha, today's son, went to the perfectly enlightened one and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and friendly talk was finished, he sat down at one side and asked the perfectly enlightened one, Master Gautama, 
What is the cause and condition why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly and healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born and high-born, unwise and wise. What is the cause and condition, Master Gutama, why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? Student, beings are owners of their actions, ears of their actions, they originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. I do not understand in detail the meaning of Master Gutama's, Master Gutama's statement which he spoke in brief without expounding the meaning in detail. It would be good if Master Gutama would teach me the teachings so that I might understand in detail the meaning of Master Gutama's statement. Then student, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, the Brahmin student Suba replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this. Here student, some man or woman kills living beings and is murderers, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if, one, if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a state without basic necessities in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell, but instead comes back to the human state. Then wherever he is reborn, he is short-lived. This is the way student that leads to short life, namely one kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. But here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the living, the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside. Gentle and kindly, he resides compassionate to all living beings because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in the happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in the happy destination in the heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is long lived. This is the way student that leads to long life, namely abandoning the killing of living beings. One abstains from killing living beings with the rod and weapon laid aside gentle and kindly, one resides compassionate to all living beings. Here, student, some man or woman is given to enduring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife, because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is sickly. 
This is the way student that leads to sickness, sickliness. Namely, one is given to enduring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. But here, student, some man or woman is not given to enduring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. This is the way student that leads to health. Namely, one is not given to enduring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Here student, <clears throat> here student, some man or woman is of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, <clears throat> becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is ugly. <clears throat> this is the way, student, that leads to ugliness. Namely, one is of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, becomes angry, hostile, <clears throat> and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. But here, student, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. This is the way, student, that leads to being beautiful. Namely, one is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Here, student, some man or woman is jealous, one who is selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutation, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is uninfluential. This is the way, student, that leads to being uninfluential. Namely, one is jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutation, and veneration received by others. But here, student, some man or woman is not jealous. One who is not selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutation, and veneration received by others. 
The cause of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. This is the way, student, that leads to being influential. Namely, one is not jealous, resentful, and feels better towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutation, and veneration received by others. Here, student, some man or woman does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, skins, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics and Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the distribution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is poor. This is the way, student, that leads to poverty. Namely, one does not give food, drink, clothing, carries garlands, skins, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics and Brahmins. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carries garlands, skins, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. This is the way, student, that leads to wealth. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, skins, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. Here, student, some man or woman is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make a way for one for whom he should make a way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the distribution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell, but if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is low-born. This is the way, student, that leads to low birth. Namely, one is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage respect to one who should receive homage respect, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make a way for one for whom he should make a way, make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. But here, student, some man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make, a way, make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one 
who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is highborn. This is the way, student, that leads to high birth. Namely, one is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage respect to one who should receive homage respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Here, student, some man or woman does not visit an ascetic or, bra or a Brahmin and ask him, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What kind of action would lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is unwise. This is the way, student, that leads to being unwise. Namely, one does not visit an ascetic or a Brahman and ask such questions. But here, student, some man or woman visits an ascetic or a Brahmin and asks, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise. This is the way, student, that leads to wisdom. Namely, one visits an ascetic or Brahmin and asks such questions. Thus, student, the way that leads to short life makes people short-lived. The way that leads to long life makes people long-lived. The way that leads to sickliness makes people sickly. The way that leads to health makes people healthy. The way that leads to ugliness makes people ugly. The way that leads to being beautiful makes people beautiful. The way that leads to being uninfluential makes people uninfluential. The way that leads to being influential makes people influential. The way that leads to poverty makes people poor. The way that leads to wealth makes people wealthy. The way that leads to low birth makes people low born. The way that leads to high birth makes people high born. The way that leads to unwise makes people unwise. The way that leads to wisdom makes people wise. Beings are owners of their actions. Student, ears of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. When this was said, the Brahmin student Subha, today's son, said to the perfectly enlightened one, Magnificent Master Gautama, Magnificent Master Gautama, 
Master Gautama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overturned, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gautama for refuge and to the teachings and to the community of monks. Let Master Gautama remember me as a household practitioner who has gone to him for refuge for life. All right, thank you, awesome. Can you imagine Gautama Buddha saying this originally 2,500 years ago? As challenging as it is for us to actually read it word for word when it's right in front of us, imagine this is coming out of Gautama Buddha's mind, right? Like word for word for word. And it's been preserved all these years to the point where we can read it with such clarity. So thank you to Master Teacher Gautama Buddha for all of his wisdom that he shared. And here you can see what I was talking about earlier, how Gautama Buddha isn't trying to guilt, shame, or fear anybody into learning his teachings. Because here, somebody asked him a question. The student asked him a question right here. And then the Buddha just gives him this, you know, kind of one sentence answer. And he's like, all right, I'm done, right? Like he just says it's all their actions. But then it was when the student asked for more detail that the Buddha's like, okay, well, you would like detail? I'll give you detail. <laughs> and that, that's what that whole teaching was about. So there in that teaching, you heard him talk about different things where he was explaining the truth of what leads to hell, what leads to these unhappy destinations, and also what leads to this happy destination or this heavenly realm. And remember, neither of those places are permanent. So if someone gets reborn in hell or gets reborn in heaven, it's not a permanent place. They're going to be reborn out of those realms eventually. So here you can see that if the Buddha was truly going to use guilt, shame, and fear to motivate people to learn his teachings, well, when he was asked the question, he would have just said all that originally rather than just giving this simple answer, right? Oftentimes before a teacher is going to take the effort to expound on their teachings, they like to see if the student's truly interested or not. So a teacher oftentimes is going to teach at a certain level of detail and then when the student shows interest and asks more questions, they go deeper and deeper and deeper into their teachings. Because no need to waste all the time, effort, energy, and resources to share teachings if the student really isn't truly deeply interested in learning and understanding to practice and improve their life. So rather than go through all the details, which I think Gautama Buddha said very clearly all the way through, I'll just see if you guys have any questions beyond what I just shared related to all of this because it's very detailed, very clear, very concise. Well, let's go to Miranda. Um, yes, sir. There is a question on Facebook, um, but it appears to be about chapter 26. Okay. Um, Amina asks, if we give the gift of time and we are joyful when giving it and that gift is rejected, we need to let go of any craving about the response, correct? Even if the recipient is a parent? Yes. So if you're giving a gift and of time and somebody rejects that gift, if you experience discontentedness in that moment, then that means that the gift wasn't fully purified, meaning that you were giving the gift with some craving, desire, attachment. You had some wants or expectations that this person would receive the gift. So if somebody rejects the gift, that means that it wasn't pure generosity that you were giving it with. 
it still had some strings attached to it. You were looking for some pleasant feelings if they accepted the gift. So you need to be able to give without any expectation or any wants that is just a pure gift. And if that person is practicing the teachings, they would accept your offering, right? Because that's what we're taught as part of this path is that if someone makes us an offering, then we accept the offering. But there's plenty of people in the world that aren't. So that's where you get to see whether your mind has any wants or expectations, because if you see any discontentedness associated with the rejection of this gift, then that means that the generosity wasn't 100% pure yet, because there's still some wants and expectations there. Thank you, sir. Yep. Well, on Zoom, I have a question from Anand. She asks, would it be accurate to say that the reason a Buddha is born in the world at that particular time is because it may be the greatest need for humanity to avoid a, a sort of self-destruction or to correct the path for humankind? Yes, that's 100% correct, Manal. Then she continues saying, if the propensity of humankind over eons is towards creation of unwholesome karma as seen since 2500 years since the time of Gautama Buddha then how can there be a heaven on earth will there be a heaven on earth there isn't one right now but there can be when these teachings come back into the world and they're restored and countless beings can attain enlightenment then when we have a humanity, when we have all of civilization, all of society that are enlightened or close to it, then this would be the experience of heaven on earth. Because one aspect of an enlightened mind is practicing harmlessness. Right now, you only need to spend five minutes on Facebook and see the derogatory harshness, hostility, aggression, the arrogance, the ego, the pride, the judging and measuring and comparing, the constant bickering and arguing of all of humanity just completely devolving into this darkness of badgering each other and degrading each other in certain places within Facebook. And it's not Facebook. Facebook's not the problem. It's the people who are communicating. And this is just a representation of what's in people's minds. So once people purify the mind and eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, and they're practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, part of that wisdom is practicing harmlessness, then we wouldn't speak to people in harmful ways that we do now. We wouldn't have these cravings to get our own selfish desires met. And when those selfish desires aren't met, then there's this anger and hostility that comes out. A population of people who are either enlightened or close to enlightenment, they will ask for things, they will have suggestions, they will make requests, and then if those things can't be fulfilled, they're not going to arise this anger and hostility directed at people just because they didn't get their way, right? This is what we see a lot in the world today, but it's all based on craving anger and ignorance. It's not because these people are necessarily bad people. It's just because the mind has this unknowing of true reality and it's functioning through this craving anger and ignorance rather than through generosity, loving kindness and wisdom. So in order to 
have a world that is heaven on earth, which we will probably never see. If you do the work in this life to get to enlightenment, you will never see a world that is heaven on earth because you will have escaped the cycle of rebirth and you won't come back to this world. But it's based on what we do in this lifetime to restore these teachings back into the world that other people after us will be able to continue to share these teachings in the world and ultimately create heaven on earth a thousand years from now or 500 years from now or 5,000 years from now. Who knows when that's going to actually occur. But you can get to the point where your mind is peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy, experiencing your own heaven on earth, even though other beings are suffering and having discontentedness and there's all kinds of harm going on in the world, you can get to a point where your mind is liberated and you're experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy in this life. Other people won't be experiencing that necessarily, but you can. But by the time we get to all of humanity doing that, it's probably going to be a thousand years, 5,000 years from now, who knows. But the work that we're doing right now in this lifetime by working on our own enlightenment is contributing to the ability of these teachings coming into the world in such a way that there can be the potential to create heaven on earth at some point in the future. Thanks, Richard. No more questions. All right. So that was a very long, long discourse by the Buddha there. And now we're at chapter 29. So what I'm going to do with chapter 29, I'm not sure who was planning to read this, but this chapter is the Buddha describing what he did in order to be reborn into this life as a Buddha and the various qualities of his physical appearance that were a direct result of things that he did in previous lives. Because we know that this physical body is a result of old gamma. It's based on decisions we made in previous lives. So here he's giving a step-by-step -step 32 marks that the 32 characteristics of his certain physical appearance that were all determined by his decisions in previous lives. So rather than go through this and read it because it's quite long, is what I would like to do is just open up to any questions that you guys have but for those of you guys that have read this, the way that you should read this is not that any Buddha is going to have these same 32 marks, but instead understand that this particular Buddha had these 32 characteristics and he's giving you the qualities that he cultivated in his life practice in order for him to experience these in his last life. And it's not that you should aspire for these same physical characteristics, but instead, when you look at the qualities that he cultivated in the mind, that's what you should actually look to cultivate. So when he talks about here, you know, unwavering and wholesome conduct, body, speech, and mind, and generosity, self-discipline, observance of the fast day, and honoring the parents, right? These are the kind of things, as you read through this, there's different things that he talks about that led to his rebirth in this last life as an actual Buddha. And those are the things that you should look to cultivate. Not that you necessarily need to have long fingers and toes, uh, but look at what he's talking about in terms of being kind and compassionate, you know, having friendship and sympathy for all living beings, things like this. So here, 
I'll open up to any questions you guys have without actually reading through this in its entirety. Doesn't appear to be any question for this chapter, teacher. Okay. So let's go to the last chapter for today's class, which is chapter 30. And we've actually studied this in another class as well earlier in the program, but this might be good just as a reminder and a refresher for you guys. The simile of a lamp of salt. Monks, if one were to say thus, a person experiences karma in precisely the same way that he created it. In such a case, there could be no living of the spiritual life and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates karma that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experiences its result precisely in that way. In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. Here, months, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome karma, yet it leads him to hell. While some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of karma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful residue. What kind of person creates a small amount of unwholesome karma that leads him to hell? Here, some person is undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind and wisdom. He is limited and has a mean character, and he dwells in discontentedness. When such a person creates a small amount of unwholesome karma, it leads him to hell. What kind of person ex creates exactly the same small amount of unwholesome karma, and yet it is to be experienced in this very life, without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful residue? Here some person is developed in body, virtuous behavior, mind and wisdom. He is unlimited and has a lofty character and he res resides without measure. When such a person creates exactly the same small amount of unwholesome karma, it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful residue. Suppose a man would drop a lump of salt into a small bowl of water. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the small quantity of water in the bowl salty and undrinkable? Yes, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the water is because the water in the bowl is limited. Thus, that lump of salt would make it salty and undrinkable. But suppose a man would drop a lump of salt into the river Gans. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the river gangs become salty and undrinkable? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the river gangs contains a large volume of water. Thus, that lump of salt would not make it salty and undrinkable. So too, monks. Some person, some person here has created a small amount of unwholesome karma, yet it leads him to hell while some other person here has, exact, has created exactly the same small amount of karma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. 
Here, monks, someone is imprisoned for stealing half a kahapana, a kahapana or a hundred kahapanas, while someone else is not imprisoned for stealing the same amount of money. What kind of person is imprisoned for stealing half a kahapana, a kahapana or a hundred kahapanas? Here, someone is poor with little property and wealth. Such a person is imprisoned for stealing half a kahapana, a kahapana or a hundred kahapanas. What kind of person is not imprisoned for stealing half a kahapana, a kahapana or a hundred kahapanas? Here, someone is rich with much money and wealth. Such a person is not imprisoned for stealing half a kahapana, a kahapana or a hundred kahapanas. So two monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome karma, yet it leads him to hell. While some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of karma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life, without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. Monks, take the case of a sheep merchant or butcher who can execute in prison fine or otherwise penalize someone who has stolen one of his sheep, but can cannot do so to someone else who has stolen his sheep. What kind of person can the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is poor with little property and wealth, the sheep merchant or butcher can execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep. What kind of person cannot the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is rich, with a lot of money and wealth, a king or royal minister, the sheep merchant or butcher cannot execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep. He can only plead with him, Sir, return my sheep or pay me for it. So two months, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome karma, yet it leads him to hell, while some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of karma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. If monks, one way or to say thus, a person experiences karma in precisely the same way that he created it, in such a case, there could be no living of the spiritual life and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates karma, that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experiences its result precisely in that way. In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Basim. So here the Buddha is explaining how two people can do exactly the same thing, but experience it in different ways. And it really all depends on our past decisions if we've made a bunch of unwholesome decisions in the past and we make an unwholesome decision now 
then we experience greater impact than if we've made a whole lot of wholesome decisions in the past and we then make this one unwholesome decision that will impact us differently than the person who has a whole history of unwholesome decisions. And he uses this simile of the lump of salt to help you understand that, that you can have the same size of a lump of salt and this lump of salt is representative of the unwholesome gamma. And then if this bowl of water has this lump of salt, the water is the wholesome gamma. So if this unwholesome gamma of the lump of salt goes under this bowl, it makes it undrinkable because there's really not that much wholesomeness there versus someone who's like a whole river of wholesomeness. Then that lump of salt goes into the river. You can still drink the water because there's all this wholesomeness as part of the person's past decisions. So that's what he's sharing here that we experience gamma in different ways and we shouldn't expect that a particular thing is going to be experienced by two individuals in the same way. So the more wholesomeness that you have, the more decisions that you make that are of a wholesome nature, when you speak unkind here and there or you have aggression here and there, it doesn't impact you in the same way as if you were just a very hateful, vindictive, resentful person and you were that way with everybody. When you speak that way, maybe the same as another person is going to impact you more. So the goal would be to build up as much wholesomeness as possible, realizing that you're going to have mistakes here and there. You're going to trip up on your feet every once in a while, but don't let that worry the mind. Still look at it, still look to improve, but then just deal with it in what the Buddha calls rehabilitate yourself. Look at the things that you've made unwholesome decisions with and then just work to improve those with your life partner, your children, your friends, your family, your business colleagues, things like this. Don't feel like every little mistake, you're going to immediately go to hell, like what the Buddhist talked about in other parts of his teachings here. Don't feel like that's what's going to happen. Instead, you can just continue to make all these wholesome, 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 wholesome decisions, but know that there's going to be this gradual decline of the unwholesome decisions that you're making in this gradual increase of more and more wholesome decisions that you're making. And as these two things cross and you're making more and more wholesome decisions, there's still going to be occasional unwholesome decisions that you make on your way to enlightenment. And that doesn't mean you just give up and, all right, I'm done. You know, I can't do this. Instead, you just realize like, okay, I made this small little misstep here. Let me fix that. Let me improve. Let me make it better. And then keep on moving towards enlightenment where I'm no longer doing those things. So that's what he's talking about here. Any questions on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right. So that's our last chapter for today. We're finishing at chapter 30. So next week, we're going to be in chapters 31 through 40. And those are the next 10 chapters that we're going to be doing. And then the following week, we're going to only do chapters 41 through 45. So there's five chapters there. There's some weeks where you guys have seen that we needed to do 12 or 13 chapters. And then now we've got a week coming up two weeks from now where there's only five chapters. So it kind of all evens out to about 10 chapters per week is what we're covering, both in your private study and then here in class as well. So thank you all for your active interest in learning and studying. 
Thank you for the questions that you ask in class. Thank you to the moderators for contributing your time, effort, energy, and resources to helping us conduct our class. Together, everybody is learning these teachings and building up your wisdom so that you can make wiser and wiser choices as you move forward in life. So thank you all for your own independent practice of developing your wisdom in these teachings because as you do and you make wiser and wiser choices, it's helping you, but it's also helping all of humanity by you choosing to make wiser and wiser decisions in the world. You're not causing harm in the world. And by you reducing your harm, that's less harm that other people have to deal with. So it's helping you, helping those close to you, and helping all of humanity as we bring these teachings of the Buddha back into the world so that more and more people can experience this liberation of mind, this peace, this calm, this serenity, this joy of the enlightened mind. So I'll see you guys next week in this Saturday's class. If you would like to attend tomorrow's class, which is Sunday in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 20, which is titled Animal to Human, the Evolution of Our Consciousness. This is where we're going to be talking about how the human mind comes into this world, oftentimes from the animal world. And this is why we have a lot of animalistic instincts. And some people even consider humans to be animal, even though we're not. We oftentimes function like animals in the unenlightened state. So I'm going to help explain that to you and help you understand it as it relates to the evolution of our consciousness of what we can do in this life to evolve to becoming a better and better human being. And we'll be talking about the cycle of rebirth in that class as well. So that'll be tomorrow at the same time in the group learning program. And then this Wednesday, we'll be doing loving kindness meditation together and opening up to any questions that you guys have about anything as it relates to this path to enlightenment. So I'll see you guys either next Saturday, perhaps Sunday, tomorrow or Wednesday, maybe all of those days. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.